Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. Today, I have a very interesting guest, and we're going to do another show on the Law and Crime author series. And the author is an exciting author, an academic, uh, loads of experience. I'll put the thumbnail up on the screen. The name of the book is The Bulldog Detective, Dr. Jeffrey D. Simon, and he's going to appear today. And you see that rather... Uh, rotund detective to the left. That's how detectives used to look back in the 20s before they discovered that uh, if you go through a police career at that weight, you're going to die about three years after you retire. Anyway, The Bulldog Detective, very exciting. It's written in the 1920s. I'm going to read I'm going to read his Amazon intro for The Bulldog Detective. We'll keep this on the screen. The Bulldog Detective, William J. Flynn in America's First War Against the Mafia, Spies and Terrorists, and it came out on January 16th, 2024. Of course, that's Dr. Simon on the screen and to the right, smiling, because I guess he's selling a lot of books at that bookstore. America in the early 20th century was rife with threats, organized crime groups like the mafia, German spies embedded behind enemy lines ahead of World War I, package bombs sent throughout the country, and the 1920 Wall Street bombing dominated headlines. Yet the story of the one-man tasked with combating these threats has yet to be told. The Bulldog Detective, William J. Flynn, and America's First War Against the Mafia, Spies and Terrorists, is the first book to tell the story of Flynn. The first government official to bring down the powerful mafia, uncover a sophisticated German spy ring in the United States, and launch a formal war on terrorism on his way to becoming one of the most respected and effective law enforcement officials in American history. Long before Elliot Ness and the Untouchables went from Al Capone and the Italian mob in Chicago, Flynn dismantled the first mafia family to exist in America. Next stop for the indefatigable crime fighter would be chief of the Secret Service, where he would set his crosshairs on the country's most notorious currency counterfeiters. Coined the bulldog for his tenacity, Flynn's fame soared as he exposed Kaiser Germany's sophisticated spy and sabotage ring on the cusp of America's entry into World War I. As the director of the Bureau of Investigation, the forerunner of the FBI, the Bulldog would devise the first counter-terrorist strategy in U.S. history. In his riveting biography, author Jeffrey D. Simon brings to life the forgotten saga of one of America's greatest crime and terrorist fighters. Exquisitely researched, the Bulldog detective finally uncovers the important legacy of his, this fascinating man will now no longer be lost in history. Wow, sounds tremendously interesting. And with us today is Dr. Jeffrey Simon. I'm not going to read his whole bio because it's, uh, but Jeffrey Simon is an internationally recognized author, lecturer, and consultant on terrorism and political violence. He's the president of the Political Risk Assessment Company, Incorporated, and a former lecturer at UCLA. He's the author of four books on terrorism, America's Forgotten Terrorists, the Rise and Fall of the Gallinist, The Alphabet Bomber, A Lone Wolf Terrorist Ahead of His Time, Lone Wolf Terrorism, Understanding the Growing Threat and the Terrorist Trap, America's Experience with Terrorism. His latest book, The Bulldog Detective, William J. Flynn and America's First War Against the Mafia, Spies and Terrorists, will be published, of course, this January 20, 2024. His writings on terrorism, political violence, and political risk have appeared in many publications, including the Journal of the American Medical Association Foreign Policy, Jane's Intelligence Review, and the New York Times. 
I could keep reading, but I think what we really want to do since he's here, we should introduce Dr. Jeffrey D. Simon. Dr. Simon, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. You know, uh, the amazing thing about this, I, in my police career, responded to two major terrorist incidents. Of course, one was 9-11, and the second one was the Times Square bomber, who, uh, thank God for the ineptitude of some of these guys. The Times Square bomber loaded his car with propane gas tanks and uh, in his own car, in his own license plates and everything, and uh, the bomb didn't go off. That, thank God, because that would have been would have killed hundreds of people yeah. that were in that crowded Times Square area at that time. So, as I said to you before we came on the air, the amazing thing about this, Doctor Simon, is that from the 1920s, now 100 years later, not that much has changed, has it? Now, you know what's amazing, and I'll get into this as we go through the whole story about Flynn, was that in a period in 1919, within a month there were first 30 package bombs sent across the country targeting high profile people, including the Attorney General, A. Mitchell Palmer, and other government officials and judges and so forth. Then a month, you know, a month after the package bombs, seven bo nine bombs went off in seven cities in a two hour period on June 2nd, including a terrorist who actually was able to walk up the steps of the home of the Attorney General, and that terrorist fell and the bomb went off, killing him. But can you imagine today if nine bombs went off in seven cities and before that package bombs have been sent? People forget, you know, terrorism has been with us for a long, long time. And unfortunately, you just can never totally eliminate it. You know, doctor, the other thing is, is now, uh, as my last 10 years of my 27 years on the NYPD, I was in Manhattan North Homicide Squad. And one of the things that has greatly aided investigations is video surveillance. Video is everywhere. And I think it was modeled after the London, uh, the Ring of Steel, they called it. Right. Because they had those subway bombers and they had a tremendous problem with terrorism in London. And now New York City's wired all over the place. You probably can't go anywhere in New York City without being caught on video. And that is where the investigation usually starts. Now it'll be rare that a perpetrator isn't caught on camera somewhere and the investigator now linked that up also to other technology like facial recognition, cell phone technology, digital tech. It's back in 1920, they didn't have that. Not they had to take the signature of the bombs and figure out who did it, right? Oh, exactly, exactly. Pieces here, pieces there. Um, it was the technology was not available Yet, you know, the law enforcement were very smart. You know, they were very capable in terms of trying to put some of these things together. But not all terrorists were caught. You know, a lot of times the crime was not solved. Well, look how long the Unabomber was out there, you know. Uh... Now, the Unabomber, that's an interesting uh, case because we hear today about lone wolves, you know, lone wolf terrorism. And some people argue, well, you know, lone wolf is never really alone because they're radicalized by the internet or social media, uh, and they're inspired by groups and they feel like they're part of a group. But Kaczynski, the Unabomber, was the true lone wolf because he just lived you know, off the radar in Montana and he was very bright and he couldn't be caught because he wasn't really leaving traces. You know, They couldn't figure it out until 
the manifesto was published in the newspapers and then the brother recognized it and uh, that's how he was caught. You know, we always depend on the stupidity of criminals, you know, to get themselves caught. And usually they uh, they cooperate with us because the first World Trade Center bombing. Remember the van? The, yeah, they the, went back to get their deposit. Brilliant. Yeah, I mean, how, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that that has to be at the top of the list, you know. And and actually, yeah. <laughs> uh, just an interesting side note: the um, book I wrote before this, the Gallianis, I was interviewing um, some people within the uh, you know FBI, and one had been with the Boston police, and he told me a story <clears throat> where they were after a gang. And they got the leader of the gang. They, you know, brought him in or one of the members. And he said, no, no, I'm not a member of the XYZ street gang. They said, look, we know you are. And he said, no, I'm not. So they say, take off your shirt. <laughs> he takes off his shirt and there's the whole tattoo. of the Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, look, the Zarnayev brothers. Um, th the scary thing about that is that the FBI knew all about them. And they knew that they were radicalized. And. I think the oldest one, I know there was Zokar uh, Zarnayev and there, uh, what's the other one's name? Um, so, or oh, Tamerlan. Tamerlan, I believe, was the older one. Yeah. He was in uh, Chechnya being trained in a terror, and they knew about it. Yeah. And I just, you know, those are the things that baffle us. Like, how did they know about this guy? And I mean, look how quickly they ID'd them from social media video that people took at the finish line. Uh, and then they compared that to Facebook. And before you know it, those guys were identified. And look, I have to say this, NYPD, Boston Police Department, police departments, when they get someone ID'd in a case like that, they want to put it out there immediately, which is the right thing to do. The FBI goes the opposite way. And the FBI actually pulled rank on Chief Davis from Boston with some political hack and said, no, keep it quiet. And then what do the Zarnayev brothers do? They execute a campus security officer, a yeah. cop. Yeah. And what, you know, so what was correct? Well, correct was to put them out there so everyone knew who the hell they were. Look, they were heading to New York. Yeah. And, and the other thing also, what the bombing shows is how difficult sometimes it is to prevent these kinds of acts in terms of the strategy of the terrorists. Because here, they could have put that bomb anywhere along the 26 mile route. You can't protect, you know, 26 miles. And at right. the finish line, they could just blend in, you know, with, with everyone else who's watching, you know, the end of the race. Yeah. We do things like ban backpacks, right? And yeah. uh, that's, well, in, in the perimeter, I think that's probably the right thing to do, yeah. you know, and uh, they were using that, uh, that device with the uh, pressure cooker. Yeah, that that was that was the fruit that was the flavor of the terrorists back then. I don't know if they're still using them. They actually used one in New York yeah. um, during um, uh, O'Neill, uh, Commissioner O'Neill's uh, uh, term down in Chelsea. Same thing. It's like, and it blew apart some big garbage container, but it didn't kill anybody. Now, but you know how they got the same idea. type of thing. You know, you know how they got the idea because both Al Qaeda and ISIS. In their magazines online, were giving instructions on how you build pressure bombs. That's how they learned it. You know, pressure cooker bombs. Right, so, right. And it seems like that's well. Back in the day of the weather underground, it was pipe bombs, right? Right. Uh, and is that, that, did another, that go the way of the horse and buggy, or what? Another quick side story about the weather underground. I, I grew up in Brooklyn, and I went to 
Midwood High School, which was like in the Flappish area of Brooklyn. And in my graduating class was Judith Clark, who was one of the uh, Weather Underground, who was just, I think, uh, pardoned uh, and released uh, about a year ago. But she was involved uh, with the Weather Underground and it brings armored truck robbery in Nyack, New York, where you know, a number of people were killed. Also in my high school was a woman who was a hostage in a PFLP, Popular Front for Liberation of Palestine hijacking in 1970. It was one of the most spectacular hijackings ever. And when I looked at my high school yearbook, all three of us, terrorists, the hostage, and myself, were in a group picture for the honors. Oh, system. good. That's great for the sales of your book. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, you know, it's a, it's a small world, you know, but uh, yeah. You know, right. it's amazing how these things uh, are so, you know, when they occur, it's like everyone wants these people put to death. And then as years go by, the Bowdens, uh, the, she was hired as a professor at Columbia University. Her son was um, uh, the, the district attorney in San Francisco. Right. And the father just got pardoned. But they, they yeah. I, I think all of them are very, or the, the wife who was teaching at Columbia, she passed away, I think, a year or two ago. Yeah. But uh, I'm amazed at that. Like, really, Columbia, you want to hire a former terrorist as a professor? Yeah, that's what they yeah. do there. I guess UCLA probably does the same shit. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, you know, it's, uh, yeah, like I say, the whole terrorism, the whole controversy we see, it's nothing's new. You know, that's, that's what's amazing. It's, yeah. That's Let's why take a look at um, this little rotund detective here, William J. Flynn, uh, <laughs> and America's first war against the mafia spy. You know, it, it sort of just makes me laugh because that was like a stereotypical look, I guess, back in the 20s, very dapper. But that overweight, you know, out of shape oh. detective. And we laugh at it on the NYPD because even when I came on the job in 1985, the old timers were all out of shape, cigarette smoking, heavy drinking. Uh, you know, they do their 20, 25, 30, whatever it was on the job. And then they would live for two or three years and die. Yeah. You know, they never got a chance because they lived a horrible lifestyle when they were on the police department. And look, police work, if you really do the job, it's not an eight hours, eight and a half hours, and you go home. You live the job. And because of that, sometimes you do live that horrible, we call it cop food, pizza, Chinese food, cheeseburger diet, you know, because you need that energy to work those long hours. And it's not the hell, you got to make sure that you do try to stay in shape. You tr do try to work out and you do try to have a healthy diet or, or when you do retire, you're not going to live too long. But what's amazing about Flint, see, that photo was great, you know, because that is just everything about it because he looks so, I mean, almost you could think, is that a racing form, you know, in, in his pocket in the back, yeah. you know, and the way he's walking and everything. He was like about 300 pounds, but he had a brief period where he was a deputy commissioner of the NYPD. And when he had that job, he basically got rid of the people who looked like him. He said, I'm replacing all these old timers who can't even run. They're no longer going to be the detectives. I want young people to be the detectives. And he like reorganized the detective bureau of the NYPD. But uh, no, yeah, Flynn, uh, he liked to eat. And uh, he, he just, he, he, was, he was a big man. Can't hear you. Hello. 
Not hearing you. Hello. Sorry. I, di I didn't put myself back on the screen. I was saying I used to tend bar at a place called Pete's Tavern on 18th uh. Street in Irving Place before I came on the police department. And it's a famous bar in American history because it's still there. It's been there since 1864. And it was, of course, down the street from Tammany Hall, which I believe was on 14th Street. Right. And all the politicians would go into Tammany Hall and, you know, legend has it, they would cut deals at the bar and all this other stuff. But it was... Uh, politicians and wise guys and criminals and everything all alike that would drink at Pete's Tavern since 1864. Oh, wow. That's, that's amazing. I just gave them a free commercial. I didn't even intend on it. <laughs> <laughs> I, one time I was in New York, I wanted to go get something to eat and I was near um, Sparks, I think it was Sparks Steakhouse. Yes. And I knew that's ringing the bell and I can't figure out why is it ringing the bell. And I went in there and then there, you know, the whole thing with the killing, you know, yeah. yeah, that was when Gotti took over, and you know, yeah, you so, uh, and Sammy. I've had Sammy the Bull on the show, and he talked about that. Uh, oh, really? Really? Yeah, he was one of the, he was in the car with Gotti. Yeah. He was like a, he was a backup shooter. Wow. So, but uh, yeah, Sparks. That was like 1985. That's what the year I came on the job. That happened. Oh wow! Right, so you had a right long, you had a long career there. And Tommy Bellotti, I think it was his driver. I think they whacked him too. Two for the price of one, you know. Wow. And they were all wearing these Russian hats. So as people would like just look at the hat and not look at their face. Oh, really? It's like a distraction. Yeah, there was a, supposedly a bunch of shooters. They want to make sure that uh, they got them. And they did, you know. They did. Oh, yeah, definitely. So, yeah. all right, let's talk about Flynn. You, you, okay. you, you have in, in, the, in the book also that uh, he went after the mafia. And who yeah. were the big yeah. names in the mafia back then? Um, it was the Lupo Morello, Morello Lupo gang, Giuseppe Morello and Ignazio uh, Lupo. Now, what they were, were basically the first mafia family in New York, and even almost, you could almost say, you know, in the U.S. And they went after, um, they did extortion, murders, kidnapping, but mainly also counterfeiting. Now, one of their strategies in terms of the extortions was to what was called black hand letters. They would send black hand letters. It'd be a letter with a black hand, which meant either pay or die, or in the hand would be a dagger or a knife. And they would say to the wealthy Italian businessmen, "You pay, or we're going to blow up your shop, we're going to kill you, or we're going to kidnap your your children." And they did that to those who didn't pay. And Flynn, uh, basically, his beginning is with the Secret Service, and the Secret Service job was to go after counterfeiters, counterfeiters. So he's surveilling, uh, doing a lot of surveillance over this Morello Lupa gang because they were involved in counterfeiting. And he notices somebody new hanging out with them. And then the next day, there's a body in a barrel in the streets of New York. The Morello Lupo gang believed that one of their members had cooperated with the Secret Service and they wanted to kill him. But he was now imprisoned. He was, you know, he, the, the Flynn, they put him. In, in prison, so they had to get one of his uh, relatives, uh, a brother-in-law. So they lure the brother-in-law to this shop where they kill him and then dump the body, you know, in the middle of uh, this Manhattan in a, in a barrel. So Flynn now is looking to see how I can have evidence against this Morello Lupo gang for this what's called the Barrel Murder. And Flynn keeps ten nine years 
after this case. He doesn't give up. That's why he was called the bulldog, tenacity, until he was finally able to get them on a counterfeiting charge. And the judge, when he handed down the counterfeiting, gave Lupo and gave Morello like 25 to 30 years prison sentence, which was astonishing for counterfeiting. But the judge knew they were probably responsible for that murder. So it's sort of like, you know, getting them for that, uh, that too. You know, back then, and even somewhat in my day, the way you got criminals to come around was to hit them in the pocket and specifically with wise guys, you know, all right, shut down their gambling, shut down the prostitution, shut down their whole operation. And, you know, we, we call it shaking the tree. Yeah. You shake the tree, they're going to, something's going to pop out of that tree and give yeah. up because you're hurting them in their pocket. And if they need to give up a rival to do that, they'll do it. There's no honor among thieves, as no. you know. No, no, not at all. And, and what's interesting is how I even got into writing this book. I knew many people in the Secret Service, many people, historians, never don't, don't really know who William J. Flynn was, even though during his period, he was like a media rock star. I mean, he was written about all the time. He was a prolific writer himself. He had news. He wrote pieces for newspapers and things along those lines. So when I decided, I think, you know, I'm going to write a book about him, but am I going to find enough information? So through the magic of the internet, I tracked down his grandson. And wow. his grandson was, you know, more than thrilled. Oh, you're going to write a book about my grandfather? Let me give you some antidotes. Let me give you some photos. Then the problem is, am I going to have enough information to write about 80, 90,000 words, which is you know, basically a book? And then found out how Flynn would write a lot himself. There was all kinds of material in the archives. Uh, a lot of got a lot of great cooperation, you know, from the Secret Service with their, you know, the archivists there, and so it was just really a great journey just getting started. And I knew about Flynn just in terms of what he did in terms of going after the terrorists, the anarchists uh, in 1919-20, but I didn't know about his earlier period. And he just he he was amazing. He always wanted to be a Secret Service agent, and he becomes head of the New York office in 1901 and that's where he's going after the morello lupo gang and he's going after counterfeiters and then when he's able to you know get those um lengthy prison sentences against the gang he joins the nypd as a deputy commissioner and it wasn't a great experience for him because he came across a lot of uh, bureaucratic uh infighting he, he wanted to reform the detective bureau by bringing them under his command and that they wouldn't report to the precincts. They'd be in the precincts, but he'd be in charge of all the detectives and he'd keep what they're doing secret. And here's, there's a great anecdote in the book. One of Flynn's tasks was to raid gambling houses. So he tells his detectives, 13 of them, all right, look, I'm not telling you what we're gonna do today or where we're gonna hit, but meet me at the subway station on 50th Street you know, in Midtown Manhattan. So they go there, they're waiting for Flynn to arrive. He comes in a car gets out of the car, opens the trunk, and gives each of them crowbars and axes. And he says, okay, guys, we're marching three blocks down to this gambling house. You're going to break down the door. Some of you are going through the ceiling. But I could just imagine broad daylight, these 13 tough-looking guys walking with crowbars and axes you know, in, in midtown Manhattan. People think, are these, are these criminals? Are these right, exactly. So, it's interesting that Flynn started as a Fed with the, with the Secret Service, and then 
uh, went on to the NYPD as a deputy commissioner. So he must have been politically hung for that to happen. Uh, I mean, well, connected. Yeah, he wasn't. Actually, he was not a political animal. That, this was amazing. He, he basically had become so famous after the Morello Lupo thing that the mayor of New York then wanted some high profile, you know, law enforcement official to take over, you know, become one of the deputy commissioners. But one of the things about Flynn, he, he was incorruptible. And I think the reason he was incorruptible was he really didn't play those political backroom, you know, maneuverings. He was savvy and he knew how to use the media, but he wasn't really built for all this, you know, bureaucratic, uh, you know, politics and things along those lines. But yeah, he, he always, since a boy, wanted to be a Secret Service agent. That was his dream as a kid. You know, Dr. Simon, people always will try to say that, uh, oh, um, I don't want to get political. And there is no arm of the government that is more affected by politics than law enforcement. Yeah. I always say the P in police stands for politics because what the police do, how they enforce laws, the tactics they use, it's all uh, done by politicians. And to the to the detriment, in my opinion, to law enforcement, some of the tools that they've taken away from law enforcement and all, you know, in New York, they have this crazy thing called the diaphragm law, where when a cop makes an arrest, he can't put his knee into the back of the perpetrator in order to get him cuffed, which is insane, you know, because you can't get someone cuffed that doesn't want to get cuffed and without putting your weight on them, you know, uh, getting rid of qualified immunity, um, or, you know, all kinds of different things that have hurt the police department. And so when I, and I, I don't want to make this about politics, but just putting that into it, that yeah, politics, you know, you say 1920, uh, Flynn, the bulldog detective, he didn't like the politics, but guess what? It's been with us forever and will always be with us politics. You know, oh, the whole, sure. you know, uh, defund the police movement, you know, like that's politics, you know? Yeah. Oh, definitely. Definitely. You know, he couldn't ignore it, you know, but he didn't, he, he just, didn't try to, uh, you know, maneuver himself, you know, within the political machines and all that. Yeah. And, you know, something like the, the idea of the detective bureau, like answering to the chief of the detectives, that was a, always an idea in New York City because yeah. the detective bureau wanted to be insulated from patrol, you know, which are the regular uh, Monday to Friday uniform cops on the street, which, you know, every police department will say patrol is the backbone of the police of any police department. And it's true, but the first thing any cop wants to do is get the hell out of that uniform yeah. and get off patrol because yeah. it's the most dangerous assignment and it's the most high profile assignment. And you're out in the public eye 24 seven of your career. And most people would rather put a suit and tie on or dress down like a narcotics detective or an undercover because being in uniform, you are the target. Yeah. Yeah. And, Flynn wanted to keep, you know, his people's secret from others within, you know, the NYPD. And uh, eventually he was kind of, uh, he said, I, you know, I, I had it. You know, there uh, is just too much obstacles occurring. And he called it a thankless job. He loved police work, but he felt that he wasn't allowed to do what he wanted. You know, he didn't want to do gambling raids. You know, he didn't want to go after, again, he wanted to go after murderers and, you know, extortionists, you know, and so forth. And actually... Teddy Roosevelt said that being commissioner of the NYPD is the hardest job in the world, is, is harder than uh, even being president. So. 
I think it is because of what we just discussed, the politics yeah. of New York City. Think of a, a city probably has 150, 200 different ethnic groups okay. in the city, all that are looking for their, for their piece of the pie uh, and bring all their customs and their laws and their rules and their mores to this country. And yet, you know, this is America. This is New York City. This is how we do things, you know. And you no can true. just, I guess, bend so far. And then you got to enforce the law, too. Absolutely. And what's interesting, after Flynn you know, left the NYPD, it was only about eight months that he, you know, he's with them. He goes back to the Secret Service. And he's back head of the New York office. And about two years later, he's promoted to chief of the, U of the Secret Service. Today, they call it director. In those days, it was the chief. And he's a New Yorker. He loves New York. So when the Treasury Secretary says, okay, we want you now, you're going to head the whole Secret Service, come on down to Washington. He goes, no, I, I don't want to leave New York. You know, I love New York. And they say, well, you have to. He says, well, I have an idea. And they say, what? Why don't you move the headquarters of the Secret Service to New York? And I always say, only somebody like Flynn, and really, I grew up in New York, so a true New Yorker you know, would say something like that, like, okay. Move it to us. You know, I'm not coming down there. But he does. He worked it out so he could stay in New York, but he would have a lower salary and he'd have to pay for his travels, you know, back and forth. Uh, and he was yeah, chief. He probably had sponsors. <laughs> oh, totally, totally. And yeah. while he was chief of the Secret Service, he achieved one of the greatest counter espionage victories almost in U.S. history. What happened was after World War One broke out. The U.S. didn't enter, we didn't enter World War I until 1917, but the war broke out in 1914. So the Germans brought a whole intelligence unit to New York to work on how they can sabotage, even though we were supposed to be neutral, we were still trading with Britain, and Britain was blockading Germany. So Germany was saying, well, the U.S. really isn't neutral. You know, they're allowing the, the, the uh, ships to go to Britain and everything. So we got to do something about that. So they get a propaganda campaign going against you know, Britain and they get a uh, sabotage campaign going against all the ships that are going off you know, to Britain and they try to bribe uh, dock workers to go on strike. So all this is happening. And President Wilson says to the Treasury Secretary, look, I want to find out evidence on these guys. You know, I want to see exactly what are the Germans up to. So you, Treasury Secretary, go to the Secret Service, because Secret Service was under the Treasury Department in those days. Now it's under Homeland Security, and see what they're up to. So Flynn, as head of the Secret Service, is in charge of this. He forms a special 11-man unit. He puts his best man uh, in charge of it. His name was Frank Burke. And he says, look, let's, let's find out. Let's see what they're doing. So Burke's in his office one day, and he gets a call from one of his guys saying, you know, something suspicious going on in this building. Uh, why don't you come down? We want to see who comes out of it. So Burke joins his colleague, and they see uh, one guy they had under surveillance. He was American who was doing propaganda in his newspaper for the Germans. But then they see a very well-dressed man come out who's carrying a briefcase. And they're getting suspicious, like, who is this guy? We don't really know who he is. So they follow him onto an elevator train, the L train, that's going up Fifth Avenue. I believe. It was going up Fifth Avenue. And Flynn, uh, not Flynn, uh, Burke 
sits behind one of the guys. His uh, colleague sits next to somebody else, and they're keeping their eyes on them. When when the propagandist person leaves, Burke is left alone just to look at the diplomat with the briefcase. He then remembers that there was some top-level German official that was coming to the U.S., and he remembers now the name and the face, and he says, this must be, you know, Dr. Albert, very high-level German official. He's, he wants to know what's in that briefcase. Albert is sitting next to the briefcase, reading a book, and the train stops at 50th Street, and Albert panics. He, he can't miss his stop. So he runs out before the doors are closing, gets out, but leaves his briefcase there. Burke takes the briefcase, runs out, and then Albert is trying to get back in, realizing his briefcase is there, can't get in, and he knows that somebody took it. And he then sees Burke in the street with the briefcase, and he's just chasing after him. So we have a German agent chasing after a Secret Service agent who has a briefcase, who's running away from him, jumps onto a uh, streetcar and tells the conductor, see that crazy man waving his hands? He caused a scene on the subway, you know, yeah, keep going, keep going. So they're able to avoid, you know, any uh, uh, cap, you know, any uh, interference from the, the German. So Bert calls Flynn, Flynn drives over to meet him and they open the briefcase and they see all these documents uh, about a $27 million campaign to sabotage, you know, uh, the docks, the sabotage ships, and Secret Service has a problem. They can't go ahead and admit that they took the briefcase because that may cause a diplomatic roar, uproar. So they give the contents to the New York World newspaper they trusted. And the New York World for three days has front page expose, expose on uh, what the Germans are up to. And that leads to the expulsion of a number of Germans. It raises American consciousness about what the Germans were up to. You know, during this pre-war period for the U.S. entry, and uh, it was just an amazing feat, and it led to Flynn's um, fame even more so. And I love how they offered a twenty-dollar reward for the uh, return of the briefcase. It doesn't seem like <laughs> doesn't seem like enough money for something like that. Yeah, and I thought about that, and I realized if they offered a large reward, maybe that would be a red flag for somebody. Hey, maybe there's really something valuable in it or I don't right. know, but it really was crazy just putting, you know, the $20 in. But, uh, you know, they say in the book, they didn't realize no matter how much they offered, they, they weren't going to get it back, you know. And, you know, it's uh, amazing. Even back then, um, here they, they uncover this briefcase that's uh, obviously spy related. It's a plot against our country. And yet they're concerned with the political ramifications of admitting that they have it. Yeah. Well, but it, it was serious in the sense that because of the war going on and everything, you know, in Europe, there, there could have been a lot of diplomatic uh, upheavals of uh, the of the U.S. interfering. But yeah, I mean, you're right in that sense, but they didn't need to admit that we took it. You know, just getting it into the newspaper was what achieved their purpose because it raised yeah, the awareness. Absolutely. Now, years later, Flynn admitted to it. He said, yeah, yeah, we, yeah, we took it. And Flynn, you know, he was such a media savvy guy that after he leaves the secret service in 1917 there are movies made about this whole episode about the german you know espionage and flynn uh, actually i think appears in one little bit of it and he writes a book about it so you know he was uh he was uh well known during, during that period 
You know, what was, um, I'm just interested to know, what was Flynn's educational background? Public school in New York, quit at the age of 15 when his father died and had to work to support his family. You know, his mother had, um, I think he had five or five siblings. He worked as a uh, plumber, a tinsmith. He was a semi-professional baseball player. Can't imagine that, the way he looked. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but he was. And he had a successful plumbing business going. He actually was making a lot of money, but he wanted to be the Secret Service agent. So he goes to apply for a job in his mid-20s, and they tell him, look, you got to get experience with counterfeiters. That's what we do. You know, we go after counterfeiters so there's this jail called the ludlow street jail get a job there because while some common criminals are held there federal counterfeiters who are awaiting trial are held there also so flint gets a job there he befriends one of the old-time famous counterfeiters who tells him tricks of the trade and then in 1897 flynn finally or you know gets his job with uh, the secret service and he was just happy as a lark so basically with, with a high school degree, if he even had that, right? Oh, yeah. No, he didn't have a high school degree. Uh, I well, mean, he actually was but oh, a wait, wait, 15, 15, so he graduated. He probably was in uh, maybe just started high school, but no, he like didn't so Like a freshman or a sophomore in high school. No, no. And he was, uh, but, you know, he had the uh, inquisitive nature, you know, he, the bulldog. You know, he wouldn't give up on anything. And he knew bring good people around. You know, you'd hire good people around him which you know as you know is what any leader does well you know doctor you always hear about someone that's um self-taught and street smart oh he's not educated but he's street smart and i've seen that over my oh. police career that people all the today if you don't have at least a bachelor's degree people aren't even going to talk to you you know yeah which is sort of i don't know a little bit of arrogant i think because there are those people that are self-educated and very very smart people Oh, totally, totally. And, and he, he was one of them. And you know, he had people around him. And um, he was well liked by everybody who worked with him. And uh, but then, you know, when in 1919, when there was all this wave of terrorism going on, the attorney general, A. Mitchell Palmer, needed a high profile figure to take over this bureau investigation, which was the forerunner of the FBI. So he appoints Flynn. So Flynn comes into uh, his job in May or June of 1919 with this wave of terrorist attacks and then has to figure out how do I find out who's responsible. And before that, there was never investigations that went through many different states. You know, there may be a bomb here, a bomb there, local authorities take care of it. But now Flynn had to organize his people to go all over the country, look at every little piece of evidence and, you know, try to piece it together. And they figured out who it was, that it was these Gallianists who were very militant Italian uh, anarchists, and they were never able to pin Galliani, the leader himself, uh, to the crime. They actually deported him, which was a mistake, because about a year later, there was the Wall Street bombing that occurred on September 16, 1920, which all the authorities were convinced it had to be the Gallianists again. But now they couldn't interview Galliani because he was over, you know, in Italy. And this bombing was a horse-drawn wagon with a bomb hidden, you know, in the in the wagon, goes off at high noon on Wall Street, kills 38 people, 
and injures many, many more. And it was a major, you know, major event. You know, it was uh, not like 9-11, but it was like the Oklahoma City bombing. Got, you know, a lot of coverage that day or two. But what happened was Wall Street, J.P. Morgan Bank, which was right across from where the bomb went off, felt, you know, bombing is terrorism. It's not good for business. We got to clean up this mess. So they hired all these cleaning crews that that night went in and swept up all the evidence. All the evidence. Everything was cleaned up. And so it was a very difficult investigation. And to this day, there's no definitive uh, culprit, although most people, myself included, believe it was Mario Buda, who was one of the last remaining Galeanists who did this before being uh, before he fled to Italy. You know, doctor, with uh, all of this stuff with investigation, um, it's so important that police agencies talk to each other and Absolutely. share information. And that is like what, even after 9-11, was found out to be a huge weakness of our whole law enforcement, um, you know, conglomerate, because, you know, you're talking about FBI, CIA, local police, uh, Secret Service, uh, state police, or you know, all of these organizations that have tremendous power and resources. But when they work solo, it really, you know, it it cuts back on the the effectiveness of law enforcement. And you saw that in the um, Gilgo Beach case on Long Island. You know, for years, the Suffolk County police really did a horrific job investigating that. And they kicked the FBI out very early in the investigation. There was other things going on too, corruption and stuff like that. But once they put this like task force together, and that was like a year and a half ago, three months later they found out who the guy was you know so i'm sure you see that in this type of work but yet in the 1920s they did not have the resources and the tools of course and what you know speaking about video cameras uh, digital evidence computers all of those things and when you like in this one instance with the wall street bombing where they clean up the crime scene i mean that was the only hope of maybe linking it to other things and then yeah, that was absolutely and you know getting the cooperation of different agencies was just as difficult then you know as as today and you know everybody wants their turf and also each agency each person wants to solve the case you know one of the nemesis of flynn was another guy you may have heard of him william j burns the burns detective agency yes yes and william j burns was like flynn he was media savvy also and these two you know that old saying you know they didn't like each other, you know, and and Burns tried to under, uh, undermine Flynn's um, investigation, and uh, so so Flynn had had a tough job. And when Flynn left the Bureau investigation, he doesn't get called for another federal job. He he was expecting, you know, something would happen, and nothing happened. It was a big disappointment. But he forms his own detective agency. Uh, it didn't really work that well, though. One of his clients was a movie studio that wanted to investigate Rudolph Valentino, the famous uh, silent uh, movie yeah, yeah. and uh, also safeguard uh, a horse who was racing the Kentucky Derby. But, you know, Flynn was used to bigger, you know, better things. But he forms a magazine called Flynn's, which goes on to be one of the most famous detective magazines uh, in, in history. It lasted for, you know, for decades. And one of the writers that he 
hired to write a piece was Agatha Christie at the beginning of her career. So he almost helped launch the career of the famous mystery writer, Agatha Christie. It seems like everything that um, Flynn touched, he was successful at, you know, which is pretty amazing, you know. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. My, my only regret was I couldn't find a recording of him. You know, I would have loved to see what his voice sounded like, you know, some Timmy, tinny recording or actually seen him live, you know, walking in some, you know, tinny video. I, I wasn't able to locate that, you know, but he came alive to me just through all the, you know, research, reading about him and, you know, interviewing people. And uh, yeah, he really- you know, he what, was, were, what were the memories of his grandson, of his grandfather? His grandson always would communicate with me, grandfather. You know, he never said Grandpa Willie, Grandpa, no, grandfather. Uh, his, his memories came through his mother because his mother was Flynn's, uh, you know, daughter. So daughter. his mother gave him, you know, all these stories. Uh, oh, his memories was uh, all positive. Um, some things he told me I couldn't verify, so I didn't put in the book um, that, you know, Flynn rode with Teddy Roosevelt uh, and the Rough Riders, but he gave me a lot of other stuff that I was able to, you know, verify. And it's funny, he has a big gripe. He's really ticked off that the FBI building is called the Hoover Building. He said it should be called the Flynn Building because all Hoover did was, was put a badge on and make it federal. And uh, But what's interesting is that because Flynn's major career was with the Secret Service, most of the people in the Secret Service, including former di directors that I interviewed, say to me, they really didn't know that much about him. And now, because of the book, you know, they're thinking they may do something now, you know, to honor him. And uh, but I myself didn't know that much about Flynn. And uh, it'd be like thinking of somebody today who's always in the news, you know, you know, 100 years from now, they had basically forgotten. Yeah, I think that probably um, William Bratton will probably go down in New York City history as, um, you know, the person that brought Comstat to New York City, which yeah. lowered the crime rate in conjunction with Rudolph Giuliani uh, to the lowest it's ever been. Yeah. And, that, you know, and they, he could be forgotten too, you know. No, he was really generous and nice. He wrote a nice endorsement for my book on the back of the book. And, uh, you know, he, he admired, you know, Flynn. And uh, so, yeah, he definitely um, is one of those you would be surprised if, but yes, history goes on. You know, I, I think, you know, with, um, with Flynn, it could be that he was overshadowed by J. Edgar Hoover, by other people. And as time went on, historians and journalists didn't write about Flynn anymore. And he just fell through the cracks. You know, there's such a rivalry in law enforcement, even though people in law enforcement would deny it. But uh, even I think when Ray Kelly took over after Bratton, I think there was a certain coldness uh, from Ray Kelly that he showed towards Bratton. Uh, oh, not really? giving him perhaps the credit for, you know, to me, Bratton, uh, drew the blueprint, you know, the blueprint of how the great reduction in crime was going to happen. And with Absolutely. some great leaders like John Timoney, Louis Anamone, you know, there's others I'm probably forgetting, uh, Jack Maple, right. these people that devised CompStat. And then after that, the people that followed, in my opinion, just had to follow the blueprint that was drawn up. You yeah. follow this and you'll be as successful as any. And yeah. Kelly was for 12 years, although... It sort of imploded near the end with the stop question and frisk uh, overuse in New York City. But yeah, Bratton, you know, he'll be remembered in, in the annals of law enforcement, probably yeah. as one of the great police commissioners. And you say like William Flynn, people want to be noticed. People want to be remembered. But 
that doesn't always happen, right? No, Doc, no. why don't we segue now to, uh, and I want to read a little bit more from your LinkedIn. Uh, a former RAND analyst, Dr. Simon, has conducted research and analysis on terrorism for more than 30 years. He's lectured and given workshops on terrorism to university audiences, law enforcement, and military personnel, the emergency services, and the medical community, both in the United States and overseas. He's worked with the U.S. Army on many projects, including the Human Social Cultural Behavior Modeling Program and the Soft Target Exploitation Fusion STEF Program, particularly in designing scenarios and intelligence tools to track high-value terrorists and extremists. He's conducted studies on the following issues, innovations in terrorist tactics, strategies, weapons, and targets, analysis of the growing threat of lone wolf terrorism, identification of terrorist strategies aimed at defeating biometric technologies, and assessing strategies for dealing with the global IED, improvised explosive device threat. I'm not going to read that's a lot. Yeah. And we could probably do a whole show a on lot. that. But it's what, what I, where I'll segue with this, and we, we got like about 10 minutes. This one, I told you, an hour goes boom. Sure. Um, what's the biggest terrorist threat right now to the United States? I still see it from the lone wolves. And what I think it is happening now there's so many issues and so many things going on in the world, whether you look overseas or here at home, that individuals don't necessarily have to be radicalized you know, through following groups or being told what to do. They can just react almost spontaneously to what they're feeling or what they're seeing and trying to track the lone wolf, which cuts across the whole political social spectrum. Lone wolves can be young. They can be old, um, you know, all kinds of... Uh, you know, ethnicities and races and everything that is the most difficult type of terrorist to catch, to identify before they strike because they're not really communicating with anybody else. So there's no in, uh, communication to intercept and they basically have no limits on what they can do. They're not answering to anybody. The only bright side of all this is that some of them do feel this need to do a manifesto or to post something on social media before they attack. The problem is sometimes there's not enough time before that's discovered and they, and they strike. But you know, I see you know, the lone wolf uh, continuing to be the major threat, you know, access to any kind of weapons, whether it's shootings or bombings or you know, knife attacks or whatever it may be. And you also have the problem of the lone wolf who may be mentally ill and you know, is not even really you know, aware of what they're doing. Do you see the um, open borders as a terrorist threat? Um, not necessarily. I mean, uh, I'm not the expert on, you know, the immigration and on, uh, you know. No, it's, I'm just so talking about from the perspective of that people that could be on, say, the terrorist oh. watch list. Oh, oh yeah, no. Oh, coming oh, across the border unvetted. Uh, oh, yeah, no, no, definitely in that sense, yeah, because – Basically, you know, they could blend in with with the you know people who you know really are fleeing from turmoil or wanting you know to have a life in the U.S. But yeah, so in that case, yes, and that be, does become a problem. You know, you also mentioned, and this this is where I think we get gets a little cloudy too. Active shooters, um, and you mentioned the mental health issues with active shooters, and sometimes it is a, a mental health issue. And it's not specifically terrorism, but it's being called a terrorist act. Look at the guy in Buffalo that just yeah. went into that supermarket. I mean, that was yeah. horrific, you know. 
I would, I guess I would consider that a terrorist act. See, see, here's the whole problem with terrorism. There's no consensus definition of what is terrorism. Usually for something to be terrorism, it has to be a political or a religious motive. But the irony of that is you take a mass shooting, whether in a school or whatever, if they don't leave any note or if there's no you know, political motive, it can't really be called terrorism, even though the effect is still the same. But if they simply left a note, I'm doing this because U.S. is killing children somewhere else or your government is doing this, then we call it terrorism. So it's almost better to do away with the word terrorism and, and look at the effects of the of these different acts, which you know cause the terror and cause you know the problems. But and and, they, and then you go to workplace violence. You know what's terrorism and what then is called workplace violence, and it, it becomes very murky. No, I th I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right. You, after all, you are the doctor. But yeah, I I, I, can't, I, I, can't, I can't cure anything, right? No, but I I, I think you're right about that. Sometimes I guess the word terrorism is overused that it loses its meaning and. Uh, like you said, there usually has to be a political reason for the act. And if it's not, how we how we sort of defining everything as a terroristic act. Yeah, and that reason doesn't even have to be clear cut. You know, some of these uh, lone wolves will do something and just, you know, throw out a slogan or, you know, throw out, I did it for, you know, ISIS or I, I did it, you know, for protest this policy or whatever. So there's a whole range of, you know, the motivations and the backgrounds of, of, of the terrorists. But if, going back to that question, I see that lone wolf as really being the main threat that, that we're facing. Absolutely. And what, in your studies, do you recommend ways for law enforcement to combat terrorism, especially you talk about IEDs, improvised explosive devices. And we haven't seen a lot of that in this country. I mean, we very well could be. Of course, Israel was one the one of the main places where IEDs were being used, you know. And it's how about Ireland years ago with the IRA? Right. They were doing the same type of thing. And you mentioned now the 1920s; these bombs were probably pipe bombs, right? Um, yeah, yeah, pipe bombs. And look at the, well, the, yeah, the, the building. Uh, yeah, I was talking about Timothy McVeigh, McVeigh, and the Murrah building. They used uh, fertilizer. That's right. right? That's right, yeah. In a U-Haul truck, which was sort of an infamous thing. And no one, before that occurred, no one knew that you could make a bomb that way. Yeah. And what's interesting about the Oklahoma City bombing is that two years before that, we had the World Trade Center car bombing, the truck bombing. So once- 1993. 93. So yeah. 95, news breaks out, oh, Oklahoma City, there's a bombing at the Federal Building. Everybody jumps to the conclusion that it was the Islamic extremists because we tend to in this country react and every country does it to what the latest incident is and say, think that's going to be our threat going forward. And that catches us, you know, we get caught off guard. So then when it was a good old American boy looking, he looks so clean cut, then wait, now we have the militia threat. We have, you know, the, you know, this kind of uh, issue going on. And then you have uh, the world trade center bombing, you know, so it's, um, you know, the nine 11 attack. So, Right. Yeah, the terrorism goes in circles, and uh, it, it's it's hard for law enforcement, intelligence agencies to try to prevent these attacks. But it's good intelligence, cooperation, and again, monitoring the social media, monitoring the internet, because that's where you can find maybe not from the lone wolf, 
but from organized groups, the chatter, the communication, you know, what's happening that will give you some lead time to be able to, you know, investigate. Well, whenever one of these these acts happen, uh, it always the, the the journalists are always looking for <clears throat> whether did the FBI know about this, right? And a lot of times they do, but how can we define what they should do? What level of response should they have when they get in hundreds and thousands of reports right. of things? What triggers that? Okay, we got to go pick these guys up, or we got to interview them, or we got to do this, we got to yeah. do that. Difficult. I mean. We talk about 9-11, it would seem obvious to uh, an amateur sleuth that people that are taking flying lessons in Florida and only want to learn how to fly the plane in the air, they don't want to learn how to take off a land, mm -hmm. that should make, but you know, something, was it that obvious? I don't know. You, no, you can't, exactly. There's so many, uh, it's easy you know, in hindsight to you know, put the blame somewhere. You know, the only thing about 9-11 that wasn't surprising was that terrorists always have to try to do something different or something more violent to rise above the normal flow of terrorism so people pay attention. So there were car bombings on the ground. There, were car there was an attack at sea, the uh, USS Cole. So it was only a matter of time before terrorists were going to strike from above. But that still is just too general. You know, how do you pinpoint that it's going to be, you know, the world, the uh, Twin Towers? I think probably the scariest thing is that, and we already know that they have uh, access to drones. Yeah. And yeah. if they start using drones for terrorist activity, that's uh, that certainly is a scary thing. Oh, totally, totally. And uh, terrorists, you know. It's a technological race. It's a never-ending technological race. And there are, we talked about some dumb terrorists, but there are also some smart terrorists. And there are terrorists always thinking, you know, what's the next technique I could use? And law enforcement and those combating terrorism, we have to try to think ahead of them. And you have to think like the terrorists. What are they, you know, plan? What do you think they can do and how can they do it? And how can we stop the next attack from occurring? That's... Uh... Yeah, well, that's that's one good thing is that they do have the Joint Terrorist Task Force with the uh, FBI and the local police, and uh, that's one good way to, to thwart these things. Absolutely. The, um, the book is The Bulldog Detective, Dr. Jeffrey D. Simon, and you see that rotund guy on the left. <laughs> He's the Bulldog Detective, William J. Flynn, and America's First War Against the Mafia, Spies, and Terrorists. In addition... Well, there's a picture of uh, Dr. Simon selling his books there. He's smiling. I, th I think he must have sold yeah. a lot of books that day. That yeah, um, was a couple of years ago on this Alphabet Bomber book I wrote, yeah. Oh, okay. So I, I wanted to uh, pull up the, if I have it, I don't know if I have it listed here. Um, you've written four books, right? This is the fifth. This is the fifth book. This is the fifth. Do you want to just um, list them here? Yeah, okay. Um, first book I wrote was called The Terrorist Trap. America's Experience with Terrorism. I wrote that in 1994, did the research in the 80s. Then I had Lone Wolf Terrorism, Understanding the Growing Threat. That was 2013. Then um, the Alphabet Bomber, a Lone Wolf Terrorist Ahead of His Time. That was 2019. And then 2022 was America's Forgotten Terrorists, The Rise and Fall of the Galeanis, and now the Bulldog Detective. Wow. Quite impressive. Is there any possibility that um, the Bulldog Detective could make it to the big screen? I've been trying that. I, I've been uh, I've been pursuing that. It's hard, you know. Everybody tells no, I, me. 
I talk to writers all the time. Oh, they say uh, this would make a great movie. And I say, yeah. And I, I've been trying to make contacts and uh, nothing yet, but I'm, I'm hoping because uh, I could just see, you know, it'd be just a great story. So many aspects of his life and you could pick one or pick them all, but you can really make a dramatic uh, story out of it. You know, uh, a friend of mine, a retired detective named Tommy Dades and a, a retired uh, Brooklyn prosecutor named Michael Vecchioni, they wrote a book called Friends of the Family, oh. which is about the mafia cops, sure. Ippolito and Caracappa, who are actually doing hits for the mafia while they were New York City detectives. Yeah. And they've been trying to have that made into a movie for years. And a couple of times it's been like, Oh, it's gonna go. It's gonna, and it falls apart. You know. Yeah, yeah. And it's yeah, a great, yeah. great story. Just like your story is a great story. You know. Absolutely, absolutely. So you know, like Flynn can never give up. You know, have to be like the bulldog and just keep, uh, keep at it to try to. You'd get be it. the bulldog doctor, the bulldog writer. <laughs> oh, yeah, I should have used that. Darn, I should have that as a moniker. <laughs> Doctor Simon, your final words. Um, you know, everybody, no matter how bad things may look. You know, first of all, we're still incredibly lucky to live in the United States. You look around the world, and when there are terrorist attacks, uh, we'll get through them. I mean, I know this sounds, you know, very uh, easy to say, but we just have to, you know, keep ahead and uh, keep uh, be aware. You know, awareness is important in terms of any suspicious packages, but law enforcement, police are doing a great job. and. Um, I feel safe in America. That old expression, I think it was invented in New York after 9-11. If you see something, say something, right? That's, Absolutely. That's, that's out there all the time. So, folks, the book is The Bulldog Detective. You can get it on Amazon. Amazon, excuse me. Dr. Jeffrey D. Simon. And this is the fifth one of his books. And this seems like it's uh, quite an interesting book. Perhaps we'll see it on the big screen one day. Dr. Simon, I want to really thank you for coming on the show today. As I told you, I said earlier, we'll do 45 minutes to an hour. Before you know it, you know, we, I guess both of us like to talk. We start talking and we covered a lot of different areas here, though. And uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thank you. I really enjoyed this. This is great. Have a great day and we'll see you soon. Okay. Take care now. Bye. One episode, just